Hello and welcome. Good morning. It's Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Special welcome to the folks at WSB Radio in Atlanta who are taking this first hour of the show this morning with all the news that happened overnight in Iran. Let's get to that from the North Georgia mountains to the Florida line. We'll take your phone calls as well. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. As always, if you want to reach out as well, you can get me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at E.W. Erickson. Uh, I want to break this down for you with what actually happened, and then we'll get into the analysis. Uh, who was this person? If you're just waking up to the news this morning, General Qasim Soleimani is dead. He is the leader of the Quds forces in Iran. Uh, I have been on the phone sometime after 5 o'clock this morning uh, getting background briefings on this stuff. Uh, it, it, one of the most annoying things in, in the modern world is how everyone immediately becomes comes an expert on anything that's happened and you go on social media and everyone pontificates and claims that they are an expert. I, I wanted to actually talk to the real experts instead of getting my news off Twitter this morning. Uh, so I did. Uh, and thank you very much to the Trump administration for making a lot of people available to make this happen. Uh, let me just set the stage for you. This happened during Anderson Cooper's show last night on CNN. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm just getting some word in right now. Go ahead. This is a statement from the Pentagon, and I'm just reading it to you as I'm hearing it. At the direction of the president, the U.S. military has taken decisive defensive action to protect U.S. personnel abroad by killing Qasem Soleimani. It goes on to say, Soleimani was actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. That's the end of the statement. Sorry, it was being read to me as I, the statement goes on, but that's the bulk of the statement. So, Dexter, what do you make of that? Well, I, you know, I haven't seen the intelligence, but um, actively making plots to kind of undermine American interests or to attack American soldiers or, or diplomats. I mean, that's, you know, that's another day at the office. for That's what he does. That's what he does. That, what he did. Uh, now, I want to put this into further perspective for you because there's a Reuters report from 1.43 p.m. yesterday. The headline is Pentagon chief, uh, that is U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, Mark Esper, says USC signs Iran or allies may be planning more attacks. Uh, again, this happened yesterday afternoon before Soleimani was killed. Uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Mark Esper said on Thursday there were indications Iran or forces at backs may be planning additional attacks, warning that the game has changed and it was possible the United States might have to take preemptive action to protect American lives. Hint, hint. There are some indications out there that they may be planning additional attacks. That is nothing new. We've seen this for two or three months now. If that happens, then we will act. And by the way, if we get word of attacks or some type indication, we will make preemptive action as well to protect American forces, to protect American lives. Iranian-backed demonstrators who hurled rocks at the U.S. Embassy in two days of protest withdrew on Wednesday after Washington dispatched extra troops. They had tried to storm the embassy in Iraq, and it was amazing to see Democratic partisans uh, pointing their finger at the president saying, this is your Benghazi. Uh, well, I thought nothing bad happened at Benghazi, and yet now suddenly it's become bad, and the Democrats are saying it didn't exactly turn out like Benghazi. The president sent extra troops. Well, then later in the day comes word that Qasim Soleimani has been killed, along with a number of people. It appears to be a drone attack near the Baghdad airport. 
What is not clear is whether or not this was an actual American drone attack or the Israelis, then we cooperated with it and the president blessed it. We don't really know. It seems more and more overnight. And by the way, the, the administration is not going into full detail here with what happened. Uh, in fact, uh, Jamie Dupree um, from Washington, D.C. In, in the D.C. Bureau just texted me and said that they put a news lid on the White House until 1.45 p.m. That means there will be no news coming out of the White House. Now, if the president has his phone and tweets, of course, there could be but otherwise there will be no news coming out of the White House. Uh, the only tweet from the president last night was an American flag. Now, you need to understand why this is such a big deal, and we need to look at the political dynamics of this. Uh, there are a couple of easy predictions we can make. I've got those up at theresurgent.com right now if you want to go see them. Uh, I will be sending out alerts throughout the day on this as things develop. If you want those, text the word SHOW to 33777. Kasim Soleimani is a bad guy. Uh, what You heard the clip from CNN. Uh, what he does for a living is he organizes terror around the world. He's the head of the Quds Force, was the head of the Quds Force in Iran. If you want to understand what that is, uh, take the CIA and combine it with the Navy SEALs. That's the Quds Force. They are special forces, and they're the Iranian intelligence network. They operate all over the world. Just a couple of years ago, they attempted to assassinate the Saudi ambassador to the United States by blowing up a restaurant in Washington, D.C. Now, for all the the, the fearsome uh, data about the Quds and how they operate, the further away they get from Iran, the more incompetent they are. Take this attack on the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago. Uh, the plan was to blow up a restaurant in Washington, D.C., wherein the Saudi ambassador regularly ate. Uh, the Iranian Quds Force reached out to uh, operatives with a Mexican drug cartel uh, were willing to pay the members of the Mexican drug cartel to blow up the Saudi ambassador. Now, uh, pay attention there. Yes, uh, the Mexican drug cartel operating south of the border, coming across the border. Yes, uh, the border security issue is impacted by Iran. They know it is a weakness, even if the Democrats don't want to admit it. Uh, there have been people who have come across the border from foreign countries in the past. Uh, there have been people within the American intelligence community who suspect Iran sees that as a point of weakness. Here's what I Hush, Siri. Uh, so what happened was they reached out to the Mexican drug cartel, and it turns out the Mexican drug cartel were actually Department of uh, Drug Enforcement Agency informants. They informed the DEA, who informed the FBI, who informed the CIA, who disappeared the Mexican drug cartel people. Actually, they were arrested. They weren't really disappeared, but it was an incompetent effort by Iran. But they tried to perform a terrorist attack in Washington, D.C., let me back up even further. Let's go in the way back machine. My family moved to Dubai in 1980. We moved back to the United States in 1990. Uh, we were there for the height of the Iran-Iraq war. Our school was a few blocks from the beach. It was several stories high, and you could stand at the height of the Iran-Iraq war in 1988. You could stand in our top floor. It was Miss Von Spricken's classroom. She was the fine arts teacher, and you could see the smoke on the horizon. You could hear the explosions as the Iranians decided towards the end of the Iran-Iraq war to begin blowing up American oil platforms. My dad's was one of the oil platforms the Iranians targeted. Luckily, he was able to evacuate, and the American Navy intervened just in time. He's got an incredible picture of one of the U.S. warships uh, right, off, right outside his platform window protecting his uh, oil platform. Others, however, were not so lucky. Uh, they tried to kill my dad. The Iranians did. 
Uh, they tried to kill my family. We would have to go to school and go through security checkpoints. American kids, even those in, in uh, schools where there's a lot of gun violence, you don't appreciate this. I would go to school in Dubai in the 1980s, and literally police officers would greet us at a security checkpoint, and they would open our sandwiches to see if we had explosives. They would unwrap our sandwiches. They would open our lunch boxes. They would search our school bags to make sure we weren't we weren't assassins for Iran or Iran hadn't hadn't secretly planted something on us. We've been dealing with this Iranian situation for decades. This is not something new. There have been a series of hijackings and bombings around the world. The Quds forces since uh, the Iranian revolution in the 1970s did uh, one of my best friends growing up. His name was Amir Amiri. His grandfather was one of the top guards for the Shah of Iran. His family had to flee over the uh, northern mountains in Iran to get out of the country when the Shah fell. And his family uh, lived in a, a secure apartment in the Hyatt Regency in, in Dubai. Um, the Iranians have been systematically going around the world trying to assassinate those tied to the Shah's regime and opposition parties for a long time. It has escalated into the 1990s uh, after the Iran-Iraq war when many of the veterans from Iran repatriated to Iran and had unique military skills. They were battle-hardened. One of those people was Qasem Soleimani, who is a diehard believer in the Iranian revolution. He deeply believes in Islam. He deeply believes in Shiite versions of Islam. And he deeply believes that Iran needs to help bring about the apocalypse. He actually does believe these things. He's been very open in the past about believing these things. He believes that uh, Iranian Shiite uh, Islam is the path towards uh, bringing the Mahdi, the, the uh, essentially bringing Jesus. You know, Islam does have a Jesus belief. Uh, and he, he's a bad dude, and we have taken him out now. The reason we have taken him out is because he was escalating attacks on American diplomats in Iraq. We know, for example, the Quds Force was involved in the storming of the embassy in Baghdad this past week. We have video surveillance that shows that uh, the Iranian Quds Forces, were their operatives were in the crowd. Some of them were even going so far as to wear their uniform in the crowd, uh, showing that they were involved in this and they were willing to participate and willing to... Uh, encourage the activists in the crowd. This was not uh, mourners, as was first described by some members of the American media and those on the ground in Iraq. It was not mourners. It was an actually organized attack by the Iranian Quds forces led by Qasem Soleimani. According to Mike Esper, I read you the report from Reuters at one o'clock yesterday that we have intelligence showing that they are about to escalate attacks on American forces. Killing Soleimani actually throws the Iranians off their game. And this is something I've been told repeatedly this morning is he is the most trusted loyal lieutenant in Iran. As, as one person put it to me, think of kill. If you want to put in perspective an, an American correlation to killing uh, Qasem Soleimani, think of someone killing the vice president of the United States because that essentially is his position. Yes, Iran has a president, and in domestic policy in Iran, the president of Iran reigns near supreme. 
But when it comes to foreign policy uh, led by Iran, uh, Qasem Soleimani is the man who directs Iranian foreign policy. In fact, he had an exchange with General Petraeus a few years ago who was um, blasting the Iranian ambassador situation in Bahrain. And uh, Qasem Soleimani actually sent a message to Petraeus saying that the ambassador to Baghdad was, or not to, to Bahrain was a Quds member. If they were, if that person was killed or removed, then he thereafter would um, replace him with a Quds forces person. So the Quds forces are the ambassadors. They are the, the loyal lieutenants on the ground. They are the Iranians who took over the situation in Syria to help Bashar al-Assad. Um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria was losing to the Kurdish American forces. Iran came in, they rode across the northern part of Iraq. Interestingly enough, the Kurds in northern Iraq blocked their passage and they had to kill enough of them and pay enough of them off to be able to get to Syria and it still wasn't enough. They began air transport over Iraq. Then uh, they would do it uh, in areas where they didn't think the Americans would come after him. And that's the thing you need to pay attention to here. This man has been able to operate since the late 1990s because American foreign policy has largely t- treated the Iranians as gnats to be swatted. So if there was an attack, uh, we would respond. And then there was another attack and we would respond. And each attack became uh, more aggressive and we would respond. And But we would never respond more aggressive on our own. What President Trump has done is actually signaled that we're going to punch the bully. There is a partisan reaction today from Democrats, and the Democratic reaction is essentially punishing the kid who punched the bully as opposed to cheering that the bully's been taken out. It's like the the zero-tolerance school administration personnel who punish the kid who's been picked on forever for standing up for himself. Uh, The Americans are now standing up for ourselves. The policy of the Bush and the Obama administration, well, let's focus on Bush first. The reason that Bush did not go after Soleimani, he recognized he was a threat, uh, but their policy was containment within the Middle East, and they believed that if we did do it, uh, we would see an escalation around the world when we were trying to focus our efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we did not want further destabilization in in Iraq, uh, never mind Afghanistan. Uh, Then you fast forward to the Obama administration, and of course the Obama administration thinks that they can bring peace to the situation in the Middle East, particularly with Iran. So they do the Iran deal. One of the effects of the Iran deal was to send more than a billion dollars to Iran. Now, who got the billion dollars in Iran? Qasem Soleimani. What did Qasem Soleimani do? He used the billion dollars from the Iran deal with Barack Obama to fund Hezbollah in Lebanon, northern Israel, and in Syria, and in parts of Iraq, to fund the uh, rebels in Yemen who started the civil war, to fund the drone attacks on uh, oil pipelines and refineries in Saudi Arabia, and to conduct other espionage efforts, including using money to try to recruit Mexican drug cartels to to cause terrorist attacks inside the United States. That's what Barack Obama's billion dollars to Iran actually accomplished. The escalated the situation with this willful naivete, which is now being echoed by foreign policy talking heads on TV even today, that somehow the Iran deal brought us peace. It didn't bring us peace. It gave the Iranians a billion dollars to begin ramping up their terror activities. And the culmination of that happened yesterday when the Iranians decided to try to storm the American embassy in Iraq and give President Trump a version of Benghazi. And honestly, I don't know that it's a coincidence that you immediately had Democratic talking heads rushing out of the gate say oh look it's his Benghazi it's his Benghazi it's his turn it's his turn and then the president sent in the marines and our ambassador was not dragged through the street unlike what happened to Obama in Libya 
And now the president's taken decisive action to cut off the head of the Iranian who is in charge of making these calls by blowing him up. Now, here's the thing. There will be repercussions. There will be a reckoning. We need to discuss that when we come back. But one thing is for sure. Every single person I have talked to this morning has said one thing. This man was so in charge and so indispensable to Iranian planning operations that by taking him out, it will throw Iran into chaos as they try to replace this guy. He was considered the indispensable man, and he no longer exists. That's not a bad thing. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia, and this morning for this hour only broadcasting on WSB out of Atlanta. Uh, in the 11 o'clock hour here, uh, a I got asked to attend a special press briefing with the State Department at 1030. Obviously, I'll be on radio, so uh, one of our writers from The Resurgent will be attending the press briefing and then reporting in on what Secretary of State and others say uh, in the 11 o'clock hour after that press briefing. Uh, so stick around if you you can. Now, uh, there is some reaction out there, and, and I want to kind of set the tables on this for you, if you'll allow. Uh, the Washington Post has been blown up for referring to Kasim Soleimani as uh, revered, and Anderson Cooper is being blasted by people for, say, comparing him to Charles de Gaulle. And I think this is being misinterpreted by a lot of conservatives as they're praising this guy. They're, they're trying to put in perspective who this guy is in Iran. Uh, if he's not the George Washington for the Iranian revolution, or at least in the mindset of these people in Iran, then uh, think of him as a John Adams or an Alexander Hamilton. He's that big of a deal in Iran. The, the man actually is revered in Iran. He's been referred to by the Ayatollah in Iran as a living martyr to the revolution. People in Iran named their children after him. And I, I've got several profiles of him written in the, la in the past, including one by a great one by General Stanley McChrystal, who points out that uh, he has complained in the past, this guy Soleimani complained in the past, uh, that he was having a hard time going in public because too many people in Iran wanted to kiss his hand. That's how revered the guy is in Iran. Uh, one of the people I talked to, and, and I actually saw this comparison last night, and I'm assuming they got it from the guy on Twitter, uh, but it's a good comparison, said, uh, think of us uh, killing Qasem Soleimani like someone killing the vice president of the United States. It's, it's that big of a deal nationally in Iran. This is not just a terrorist. This is one of the leading political and military figures in Iran, uh, but not just a leading political military figure in Iran. Remember, the Iranian Revolution only happened in, in 1979. The, the fall of the Persian Empire happened in 1979. The, the end of Persia, the rise of Iran. This guy was uh, in his 20s, uh, became a commander on the field in Iraq because of the war and casualties around him. He became a national folk hero. I mean, take, take a modern American general, uh, whether it's uh, Schwarzkopf or Colin Powell or Petraeus or uh, McChrystal or um, uh, you name the, the modern American general, um, the, the former Secretary of Defense, uh, none of them compare in the national psyche the way Kasim Soleimani compares in the national psyche of Iran. And so I wouldn't blast the media for uh, making these comparisons. They're trying to explain to you just what a big deal this guy is in Iran. He is a huge figure 
in the conscience of the Iranian leadership. He is the right hand of the Ayatollah uh, in Iran, and that means there will be a reckoning with the United States. They will respond. As one person told me, this puts everything at stake in the United States. The Iranians are not known for symmetric warfare. We go after their military, they go after ours. We go after their military, they go after Disney World. Um, it's, It's one of those situations, and that's not meant to panic you, by the way. They completely think outside the box in their symmetries, but we have something now the Iranians don't have. We have a stable intelligence order, however flawed it may be, and theirs has gone into chaos because Soleimani was so revered and so essential to Iran, there's no one comparable to him in Iran right now. There will be leadership scuffling trying to replace him and get the power that he had And we can use that to our advantage in a way the Iranians can't use to our advantage. We'll take your phone calls on this. Get your reaction if you like. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425 is the phone number. Or you can reach me on social media at E.W. Erickson. When we come back, the partisan reaction in the United States and the foreign policy reaction as well. Get exclusive interviews and Eric's daily email by texting show to 33777. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I feel obligated to do this. Had a heavy rain move through the Rome area, Dalton, Jasper, our affiliates there earlier, uh, moving through Atlanta. It is now, the, this is mostly to the east of the state. If you're up in Clarksville uh, at our affiliate up there, you've got some heavy rain right now, and it's going to last for a little while. Uh, Athens, the rain is moving in your way. If you're at our affiliate down in Macon, uh, you've got about an hour before more heavy rain moves through. It's kind of foggy here and making out the window of my studio. Uh, you got heavy rain that's going to be moving in your area. The Locust Grove area and all is going to have some rain here as well. Uh, get down further south in Georgia. You got some isolated showers down there, but the worst of the stuff is uh, Macon and north. But really, it's a it's a line uh, northeast to southwest from Columbus up to Habersham County in that area. Uh, everything now mostly to the east of Atlanta uh, in the perimeter area. Some light showers uh, still, and then get to Conyers and in the like, and very heavy rain. Uh, we're taking your phone calls on the Suleimani situation. Uh, the number is 877-973-7425 if you want to be a part of the program. Matt calling from Roswell. Welcome. Hey, Eric. Hi there. Uh I think it's going to be interesting not what Iran does. Iran's got a number of options. They can attack the Straits of Hormuz and mine it or missile it. They can hit us at home. Um, They will retaliate. The question I'm going to ask is, when it comes to our response after that, what is the American appetite to go into another conflict? I think that's going to be what's interesting here. Yeah. Not that they're going to attack us. It's going to be what our response is going to be after that. Oh, I, I, Matt, look, I think that's a very fair response and, and very fair question here. And what I suspect is going to happen is we'll begin targeting military assets within Iran. Uh, and again, that's my guess. I, I No one from the White House said I, I largely asked that question this morning. 
and they were noncommittal about their response, but did say it would be proportionate. Uh, you know, you mentioned, though, the, the rockets and mines in, in the Straits of Hormuz and into the Persian Gulf area. That's one of the other things that uh, uh, Soleimani has been doing in the last number of years. In just the last year, there have been rocket attacks on tankers in the Persian Gulf. Uh, there have been mines placed in the Straits of Hormuz. There have been American military vessels that have been targeted um, by Iranian forces. All of these things, uh, this essentially cajoling us, daring us to do something in response. Now, one of the things you need to understand is that uh, the Obama administration was targeting Soleimani uh, for a number of years. There was a serious uh, contemplation within the Obama administration of killing Soleimani uh, and taking him out because they saw him as one of the masterminds behind a lot of the instability in the Middle East. But instead of doing that, uh, the Iranians insisted in the Iran deal that Soleimani essentially be cleared of any accusations from the Americans. So not only there were travel restrictions on Soleimani prior to the Iran deal, uh, Soleimani could not go anywhere in the world outside of the Middle East. Uh, his assets that he had abroad were frozen. Part of the Iran deal unfroze his assets and got rid of the travel ban on him. So essentially, the Obama administration decided to um, decided to give the guy free reign, and that emboldened him. I, I, the Iranians, I, I this is my personal belief, and I am no expert. I did live in the Middle East for a decade. They did try to kill everybody I know in the Middle East. I really think the Iranians over the last 20 years have looked at the way the United States has responded to their escalations and decided there's no way we would target their leadership directly. And now they know that. How they respond to it, I don't know. There will be a reckoning. Uh, Fareed Zakaria was on CNN last night. I, I'm not a big fan. I think he's wrong about everything. And I want to play off the responses and reckonings based on what he said. This is, this is big. Um, this is about as big of a political figure in Iran as you can imagine. Uh, leaving aside Khamenei, the, the supreme leader, and maybe the president, uh, he's the most important person in Iran. He was responsible for Iran's external strategy, the regional strategy that gave Iran this enormous, somewhat shadowy influence in countries like Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. Um, he is the, think of the French Foreign Legion, you know, if you will, and he was the guy who was in charge of it. Much loved by the troops, obviously, from an American point of view, a very bad guy. I think the State Department estimates that he's responsible for six, the deaths of six or 700 American troops. Uh, he also organized a lot of the stuff in Syria that killed lots and lots of civilians. So there's no question uh, that from the point of view of getting a bad guy, this, is, uh, this was justified morally. But it is huge politically, geopolitically, because the Iranians will probably feel that they have to respond. Uh, it also places the Iraqi government in a very precarious position because Iraq, remember, has always had to balance its two patrons, the United States, which we always think about, but the Iranians, who have also been very supportive of this Iraqi government. And now this, in a, in a, in a, a way, explodes that. It makes them choose. Uh, I'm reading reports, for example, that talk about uh, there are, there are, uh, there's anger in Iraq because people think Iraqi government intelligence was provided to mm. the Americans, which is almost certainly true, which is what made this strike possible. If that's the case, what that suggests is that the government of Iraq essentially helped to kill one, one of Iran's most important figures. And remember, Iran is also a patron. So this is going to get very messy very fast. 
Look, he's right. It's going to get messy. Um, I think he overstates the case of how much Iran is a patron of Iraq. You have to remember that uh, the Shiite minority in Iraq has relied on Iran and the Iraqi government, when they formed it, go back to after the fall of Saddam Hussein and, and the restructuring of the government in, in Iraq, they tried to accommodate Shiites within government to free them from persecution. And the Iranians have been sending them a lot of money as patrons, but that money has been used to go after and undermine the Iraqi government. Take, for example, the pro at the American embassy last week. All, all of that was used with Iranian money. If you want a sense of the reaction on the streets of Iraq, Mike Pompeo has tweeted out video from Iraq. The people in Iraq are taking to the streets celebrating Soleimani being killed. Uh, that's not American propaganda. It's very interesting that you, you have reports, oh, we can't confirm the evidence that this video existed. They would have never done that with Barack Obama. Uh, and remember, again, we, we have a lot of people in the foreign policy talking heads on TV right now who came from the Obama administration who believed in the Iran deal, which again uh, freed up Soleimani and allowed him to travel abroad and gave him back his money that was in foreign bank accounts. Uh, Roberta in Stone Mountain, let's go to you next on the Eric Erickson Show. Welcome. Hi. Um, I was just reading an article that dates back to July of 2015 and was written by Con Coughlin um, on the te- from the Telegraph that says Obama's Iran deal has just granted amnesty to the world's leading terrorist mastermind. It's a very interesting article that goes back to 2015. Um, For a decade, he's been driving force behind an army of Iranian-sponsored terrorist groups. And from a purely British perspective, he was responsible for training and equipping the Shia militia in southern Iraq who killed scores of British troops. Yeah, listen, so I, I actually all the way back. got the, yes, I've got that article here in my stack of stuff, Roberta. Thanks very much for that. He he was the terrorist mastermind, but it's, it's wrong to consider him a terrorist. And a, a lot of the talking heads out there today are calling him a terrorist. He's not a terrorist. He is one of the, he was the top general in Iran. Uh, for all of the people blasting the um, blasting the media for trying to explain how revered this guy was in Iran, I, I can't express to you how revered he was. I mean, the fact that people were naming children after him in Iran. Now, we do need to bifurcate this a little bit because your average Iranian citizen uh, wants to be more pro-Western and they uh, are very upset with the Iranian regime. But you do have a lot of people in Iran who have bought into the Iranian vision, who are uh, who do love the Ayatollah, and they loved this guy. He was their guy, and he is no more. And honestly, that's not a bad thing. That is not a bad thing. And I, I, I have to tell you, I'm disappointed in the Democratic reaction to this. Because if Barack Obama, and again, Barack Obama contemplated doing this until someone convinced him to do the Iran deal, Barack Obama was going to do this. And this was not an assassination. This was not an assassination. This was a, a military operation in Iraq going after the, the organizers of this attack on the American embassy. And he was one of the people who organized it and went there to oversee it. It was not an assassination, contrary to what Bernie Sanders is saying this morning. Elizabeth Warren actually put out a tweet that uh, this was a terrible bad man who killed hundreds, of, oversaw the deaths of hundreds of Americans, thousands of Americans, really, when you get to the other terrorist attacks around the world that he was in charge of. And then she goes on, but... Donald Trump shouldn't have done this. Yeah, actually, he should have. You know, 
a buddy of mine pointed out that in Israel right now, they're probably going to have a third election because uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his leading uh, critic cannot agree to form a government. They can't sit next to each other. They do not like each other. But when Israel has a successful military operation, uh, that opposition leader who hates Netanyahu goes out and praises him and the military for a successful attack. A friend of mine actually sent me this email a few minutes ago. Let me let me read you this. On April 26, 1982, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher emerged before press from 10 Downing Street to share the just-received news that British forces had overrun the Argentinian garrison on South Georgia. The liberation of the South Atlantic Isles was underway. Upon communicating the victory, she was deluged with a flurry of press questions. The Prime Minister interjected with emphasis, just rejoice at the news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. She turned around and headed back to 10 Downing Street's door, and the press kept it up. She turned one last time and said, just rejoice. Take one moment to revel in the success of our arms. Pause in gratitude for those who fought on our behalf. Exult in the defeat of wrong, of injustice, of evil. Join in civic friendship, in patriotism, and just rejoice. Who will tell the Democrats now? Who will tell the Ossify DC establishment now? Who will tell all those now who cannot choke out a single unqualified expression of approval at the well-deserved death of one of the most avid killers of Americans worldwide? You know, even Republicans stopped to rejoice when Osama bin Laden was killed. And this is Iran's Osama bin Laden, but put into a geopolitical context, into a military leadership context. And Chris Murphy, a senator from Connecticut, three days ago, where, where is Wegman's email? Um, James, I, I um, got this. Yes. Let me let me read you these two tweets. Uh, this is Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut. Uh, on December 31st, Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, tweets. The attack on our embassy in Baghdad is horrifying but predictable. Trump has rendered America impotent in the Middle East. No one fears us. No one listens to us. America has been reduced to huddling in safe rooms, hoping the bad guys will go away. What a disgrace. That was December 31st. Here he is last night. Soleimani was an enemy of the United States. That's not a question. The question is this. As reports suggest, did America just assassinate without any congressional authorization the second most powerful person in Iran, knowingly setting off a potentially massive regional war? Wait a second. You, you just said that everyone, no one fears us in the Middle East. No one fears us. No one listens to us. And we're reduced to huddling in safe rooms. And now you're like, wait a second, wait a second. Uh, it's it's bad that everybody fears us now in the Middle East. Bernie Sanders has said this was, and again, it wasn't actually an assassination. We were targeting the people who organized the, the operation, the military operation against us in Iraq. This was a military operation. It was not technically an assassination. Was he, yeah, okay, you can say he was killed, um, murdered, whatever. Uh, but the bad guy is dead. And it's, it's crazy to me to see the partisans out there attacking the president for killing the man chiefly responsible for the deaths of American military in Iraq over the last decade. It's amazing to me to see Democrat partisans saying, oh, yeah, he's a terrible, terrible person, but the president should have done this. Now, their underlying premise in all of this is that the president is deeply chaotic, the president is not stable, and the president does not have anyone around him to give him advice. Uh, the, there are a couple of talking points that are predictable today. The first talking point that you're going to hear a lot today, I guarantee you this is going to happen, 
is that we don't have a national security process in place, that the president has gutted it. Therefore, there is no way forward within the national security apparatus for the president to get sound advice. Now, the corollary to that is they also think the president's too stupid to know anything about the Middle East, and yet somehow he was able to figure out who Qasem Soleimani is and give the order to kill him. Clearly, someone was advising the president on this. The president himself did not just get out of bed because he heard the guy's name on Fox News and say, hey, kill this guy. That's not the way it happened. There was an orderly process, and the United States made the determination that Iran has gotten so coordinated and so active in trying to kill American diplomats and military personnel abroad and to to undermine peace in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, in northern Syria, and in the United Arab Emirates and Iraq, that they needed to disrupt it and disrupt it as best they could. And the best way to disrupt it was to get rid of Soleimani. Our American national security apparatus worked just fine, even though you're going to hear all day that the president gutted it. That's not true. The next thing you're going to hear from the Democrats, I guarantee you they're going to say it, is that, oh, the president just wants to distract from impeachment. It's what the Republicans said about Bill Clinton uh, bombing the, the Bear Aspirin factory and the whatnot. And, and uh, there are some people in the Democratic Party today who will concede that was true. This isn't it. This comes within 48 hours of an attack on our embassy organized by the Quds forces of Iran. This is a response to that. This isn't about distracting from impeachment. This is about the president being the commander in chief and protecting American lives in Iraq. The third thing I guarantee you you're going to hear. In fact, I just saw a tweet scroll past saying as much. This is all about 2020. The president just wants to win in 2020. He's going to spark a war in the Middle East and use it to get reelected. That's not true. It's not true. That's paranoid delusions from the left. They cannot give this president credit for doing anything good ever. Anything this president has ever done, and if you're a longtime listener to this program, you know I'm not a huge fan of the guy. I didn't vote for him in 2016. I'll vote for him in 2020 against these idiots on the other side. But the Democrats are incapable of ever saying anything nice about the president of the United States. They're never capable of giving Donald Trump credit for doing anything good. The president of the United States ordered and our soldiers executed a strike in Iraq that killed the man most responsible for American deaths abroad in the last decade. He did what no prior president would do. And you know one reason he could do it? Because in the last several years, thanks to him, we've become energy independent. We now export enough oil that oil prices are going to go up today. They've, they're already going up. The, the gas station attendants are already jacking up prices today. Uh, barrels of oil, the price is going up. But we're energy independent in the United States. We're not importing oil from the Middle East anymore for us. And so... We had the independence that we could do what George Bush couldn't do because Iran could have stopped the oil flow into the United States. But thanks to policies put in place in the Bush administration and revitalized by Donald Trump, we don't have to worry about that anymore. We were freed up to act and act decisively, and that's a good thing. He doesn't just have a radio show. Eric has a website, too. Go to theresurgent.com for daily in-depth news and analysis. 
Those of you listening on WSB in Atlanta, I will be going away at the top of the hour. I will be back with you live for my own Atlanta's Evening News show this evening at 4 p.m. Uh, and I will have more from the State Department and the like. Uh, the rest of you, in the next hour, the State Department's doing a briefing. I've got a friend of mine who's going to listen in on this briefing with the Secretary of State and others and then report to me. Uh, yeah, I'm broadcasting live, facebook.com slash EW Erickson, if you want to check it out there. Uh, we will keep going. We'll keep taking your phone calls as well and get your reaction to this. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, just... I feel the need to put this in further terms for you, riffing off of what I concluded with in the last segment. We're energy independent in a way we were not when the uh, Iraq war started. George W. Bush, if you will recall, uh, when he was president, began the push into Anwar, and Democrats said, oh, it's going to take 10 years, it's going to take 10 years, there's no reason for us to do it, it's going to take 10 years. And the Bush administration said, well, we should start playing a long-term game, and Democrats tried to disrupt it, and ultimately were successful in blocking the push into Anwar. For a perspective on Anwar, uh, if you want to understand the size of the footprint of where we were drilling, picture a postage stamp on a football field. We would be drilling inside the footprint of that postage stamp. Uh, Anwar would be the size of the football field. The The Trump administration has begun the process of letting us into Anwar uh, through executive order. In the Additionally, what the Bush administration did was they lowered the barriers on fracking. And the left gives fracking a bad name. But it has freed up so much natural gas and oil. Uh, we have become a net exporter of oil for the first time since the early 1970s. Uh, the Carter administration put into place a lot of restrictions on oil. And it, though they were mitigated by the Reagan and the Bush administrations, the uh, Clinton administration began putting them back. And it began to be uh, cost inefficient for uh, oil exploration in the United States until the fracking technology was developed. The Obama administration tried to regulate and, and put out of business the fracking industry. They weren't successful doing it because of uh, the private land use versus public land use. They could stop it on public land use, but the Trump administration brought it back. And, and the result is that in the last two years, the United States has sent more oil abroad than we've brought into the United States. That has freed us up diplomatically to be able to act in a way that we could not act before because simply uh, the United States now has the reserves and capacities to do what we couldn't do in the past. And that has allowed the Trump administration, freed them up, so to speak, to be able to say, you know what, we're going to go after this guy now. Uh, it doesn't matter if Iran seals off the Straits of Hormuz. It doesn't matter if Iran blows up every oil vessel uh, out there in response to us. And by the way, Iran's not going to do that because Iran is dependent on the sale of oil to fund terror. So one of the other things the Obama administration did is they uh, freed up Iranian oil sales made it easier for Iran to sell oil uh, to continue to fund uh, Qasem Soleimani's work. Well, now Qasem Soleimani is dead, and Iran is going to have to find someone to replace him, and we should get to that fallout when we come back as well, and the fundraising numbers from the president and the Democrats. Very revealing numbers. Well, hello there. Welcome back. The second hour, Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. Still got a lot of rain out there in, in the eastern part of the state, northeast in particular. Uh, Clarksville, it is still raining in your area. Uh, Athens, you've got the rain is coming in. 
uh, checking the radar right now. Athens, you are in Watkinsville in the Athens area. You're about to have the heavy rain come through. Uh, it is still raining up in the Clarksville area. If you're in the, the Jasper, Dalton, uh, Rome area, by and large, you got some light sprinkles out there, but things are mostly in the clear at this point. Uh, although, Dalton, you're going to have another wave of rain coming through. If you are down in Macon, where I am, uh, right now, you're going to have rain here in about an hour. Um, but uh, the good news is it's it's pushing out, and hopefully we'll have a good weekend, and I will get my Christmas decorations down uh, sometime on the day of the 5th. Uh, Merry Christmas to you still. It is still Christmas. There are 12 days of Christmas. We got two more days to go after today. Uh, your lights should be off by sundown on the 5th, or you're in trouble. It's bad luck. <laughs> Okay, uh, the phone number here. We will keep taking your phone calls on the Iran uh, situation, the the death of Qasem Soleimani. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. I, I do want to get into other information, though, and we will circle back to this as it plays out. I just, I've got a note. Um, no one knows how this will play out. Everyone wants to be an expert. And I'm telling you right now, I grew up in the Middle East. I was there for 10 years. One of my best friends growing up, his grandfather had been one of the bodyguards to the Shah of Iran. And I'm familiar with them being bad people, but I'm not an expert. I got up this morning. Uh, well, I normally get up and start doing show prep for this show between 6 and 6.30. I was up uh, shortly after 5 this morning because my cell phone rang. And, you know, I've got Do Not Disturb, and that means that someone called me a couple times to get it to ring. And I woke up, and it was it was a friend of mine who is close to the White House who was willing to put me in touch with people to get some background information and briefings and talk to the actual experts so that I could come on and, and help you guys. And and I appreciate that I was thought of as, as one of the people. I'm sure I wasn't alone in doing that. What is interesting to me is how diametrically opposed a lot of the talking heads are to what's happening. One of the things you need to remember over the next 48 to 72 hours is a lot of the talking heads on television are people who worked in the Obama administration and hate Donald Trump. Uh, Jim Scudo at CNN, who's now one of the anchors, uh, he was a national security reporter for CNN First. He worked for the Obama administration. He did. Uh, a number of the other people you're going to hear who are supposedly objective people work for the Obama administration. Something else that's going to happen in the coverage is you have to remember how much the media really does hate President Trump. And they're not going to be willing to give this president a pass on statements made and claims made in a way they would any other administration. So, for example, on MSNBC this morning, uh, they noted that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, released a video of the celebrations in the streets of Baghdad of Iraqi citizens glad that they got rid of uh, Soleimani. And they were not willing to give him a pass on it and just take it face value that this was happening in Iraq. They could not, they could not confirm that that was actually happening. And when you hear people in the media say you, you can't, they cannot confirm that this was actually happening, what they're essentially doing is they're casting doubt on the video, and they know that. They didn't do that during the Obama administration when, when video would come up of places. 
They didn't even do it really, for that matter, in the Bush administration, but they're doing it to Donald Trump. So a lot of what you're going to hear from voices on television, on the news, outside of Fox, are people who don't really know what's going on, but they hate the president, and everything they do and, and every every view they have is viewed through the lens of they, they don't like the guy. They don't like his administration. They don't like his foreign policy. Many of them believe that he undermined Obama's foreign policy. You know, I, I cannot recall a time in American history other than at the, the start of the country when you had the Federalists and the Democrat Republicans and you had the, the Adams administration out and the Jefferson administration come in. I cannot recall a time where a prior administration spent so much time trying to undermine the foreign policy of the existing administration. Ben Rhodes, uh, the creative writing guy who was Obama's national security guy, has been doing his best to leverage outside influence to completely undermine this president's administration. I mean, hell, you had John Kerry was visiting with the Iranians in Switzerland last year, telling them essentially to just wait out Donald Trump. The Obama administration personnel who emboldened Soleimani and funded his terror campaign against the United States, and they did. Let's make no bones about it. That's not a partisan point. It's just fact. We gave the Iranians a billion dollars. That was their money. It was locked up in American bank accounts where they couldn't get it. We gave it back to them, and we freed up Soleimani's funds in bank accounts around the world, and we allowed him to go start traveling around the world again. We gave him an amnesty uh, when the Obama administration, their original position was to kill him. They, the Obama administration, has a lot to do with this. You can sit here all day with a straight face and say none of this would have happened with the Iran deal. And there are a lot of people who do. And they are emotionally invested in believing it. But it's not true. There are facts and there are things we tell ourselves to sleep well at night that aren't necessarily facts. And one of the things that Democrats tell themselves to sleep well at night is that Barack Obama somehow saved us from Iran when all he did was give them the money to fuel a terror campaign in Syria and the Middle East and undermine us. The Iranians have looked at the United States over the last 20 years. Every time they have attacked us in asymmetric warfare, we have responded with sanctions, with diplomacy, or with minimal military re-engagement. This president has shown that he's willing to cut off the heads of the leadership in Iran for doing what they've been doing for 20 years, actually for 40 years. But it's escalated in the last 20 with Soleimani in charge. I mean, uh, let me just, I, and I, I do, there's, there's so much other stuff I want to get to, but I, I want to read you. This is from Stanley McChrystal, and this was written in 2015. The decision not to act is often the hardest one to make, and it isn't always right. In 2007, I watched a string of vehicles pass from Iran into northern Iraq. I had been serving as the head of the U.S. military's Joint Special Operations Command for four years, working to stem the terrorism that had devastated the region, and I had become accustomed to making tough choices. But on that January night, the choice was particularly tricky. Whether or not to attack a convoy that included Qasim Soleimani, the head of Iran's elite Quds Force, an organization roughly analogous to the combination of the CIA and the Joint Special Operations Command in the United States. 
There was good reason to eliminate Soleimani. At the time, Iranian-made roadside bombs built and deployed at his command were claiming the lives of U.S. troops across Iraq. But to avoid a firefight and the contentious politics that would follow, I decided that we should monitor the caravan, not strike immediately. By the time the caravan had reached Erbil, Soleimani had slipped away into the darkness. These days, he still operates outside the spotlight. Soleimani has grown from a military commander into a ghostly puppet master, relying on quiet cleverness and grit to bolster Iran's international influence. His brilliance, effectiveness, and commitment to his country have been revered by his allies and denounced by his critics in equal measure. What all seem to agree on, however, is that the humble leader's steady hand has helped guide Iranian foreign policy for decades, and there is no denying his successes on the battlefield. Soleimani is arguably the most powerful and unconstrained actor in the Middle East today. U.S. defense officials have reported that Soleimani is running the Syrian civil war via Iran's local proxies all on his own. The prominence of the soft-spoken Soleimani has achieved is especially striking given his origins. Born in poverty in the mountains of eastern Iran, he displayed remarkable tenacity in early age. When his father was unable to pay a debt, the 13-year-old Soleimani worked to pay it off for him. He spent his free time lifting weights and attending sermons given by a protege of Iran's current supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. He was enamored with the Iranian Revolution as a young man. In 1979, only 22, he began his ascent through the Iranian military, reportedly receiving just six weeks of tactical training before seeing combat for the first time in Iran's West Azerbaijan province. But he's truly a child of the Iran-Iraq War, which began the next year. He emerged from the bloody conflict, a hero for the missions he led across Iraq's border. But more important, he emerged as a confident, proven leader. He's no longer a simple soldier. He's a calculating and practical strategist, more ruthless, and at the cost of all else, he has forged lasting relationships to bolter Iran's position in the region. No other individual has had comparable success in aligning and empowering Shiite allies in the Levant. His staunch defense of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad has effectively halted any progress by the Islamic State and other rebel groups, all but ensuring that Assad remains in power and stays solidly allied to Iran. Perhaps most notably, under Soleimani's leadership, the Quds forces have vastly expanded their capabilities. His shrewd pragmatism has transformed the unit into a major influencer in intelligence, financial, and political spheres beyond Iran's borders. It would be unwise to study Suleiman's success without situating him in a broader geopolitical context. He's a uniquely Iranian leader, a clear product of the country's outlook following the 79 revolution. His expansive assessment of Iranian interests and rights matches those common among Iranian elites. Iran's resistance towards the U.S. involvement in the Middle East is a direct result of the U.S. involvement in the Iran-Iraq war during which Soleimani's worldview developed. Above all, he is driven by the fervent nationalism that is the lifeblood of Iran's citizens and leadership. His accomplishments are in large part due to his country's long-term approach towards foreign policy. The Quds Force commander's extended tenure in his role is also an important factor, a byproduct of Iran's complicated political environment. He's been there since 1998. That's Stanley McChrystal writing in Foreign Policy magazine back in 2015. When the Obama administration had considered uh, getting rid of him and instead gave him amnesty, he's a he was a bad guy. He was a strategist, and he was the indispensable man in Iran. I have a rule of thumb in conservative organizations. Uh, yeah, I never like to invest in or go all out with a conservative group. You know, I, I like to to assist charitable groups. I like to assist conservative groups. 
And I try to avoid the ones where the person at the top is the indispensable person. I, I, I don't take this as me being arrogant. It's just a fact. This is the Eric Erickson show. If, if I die tomorrow, the show goes away. I am the indispensable person for this radio program. Although, you know, maybe Chris Burns is cause, cause he's our big ad sponsor. <laughs> but if, if I were to die tomorrow, you would not have the Eric Erickson show the next day. Maybe they would allow a day for someone to come on and say something nice for me. So it'd be a five minute show and then it would be gone and, and you'd never hear from me again. I have a problem investing in conser- in the conservative movement uh, in organizations where if the head of that organization were to die tomorrow, the organization would go away. And there have been plenty of those. Uh, in the past, I, I have seen good conservative organizations that did put a lot of points on the board, uh, shrivel up and die the moment the leader died, the moment the leader retired, the, the whole thing collapsed. It is a wasted investment to put your trust and hope and faith in an organization that is singularly dependent on one guy. I, I know of a church actually uh, very near where I live in Macon that had a prominent charismatic pastor and the moment the pastor Stepped aside, the church collapsed. I know of a church uh, that was involved where the pastor was involved in scandal. And understandably so, a lot of the church crumbled because of the pastor's scandal. And it took a long time to bring a pastor in who could help rebuild the church again. But you see this all the time, and you see this a lot in churches these days. The only indispensable man in a church should be Jesus Christ. And yet you got a lot of pastors who run it as a, as a cult of personality, and the whole thing crumbles when they go away. You see this in business all the time. You should not structure an organization in a way that makes any person an indispensable person. But because of the nature of the Iranian regime, Qasim Soleimani has been in charge since 1998. A few years ago, his number two right-hand guy was killed in Syria. So he was the guy calling all the shots. And we have taken him out now. We have decapitated the foreign intelligence and operations capacity of Iran by killing one indispensable man. That's not a bad thing. There will absolutely be a response from Iran. There absolutely will be a response from Iran. There will be a violent response from Iran. It will be an asymmetric response from Iran. We target their military. They target our citizens. That's the way Iran works. Around the world, the security threat to the United States has gone up, and Democrats will pounce on anything and say it's all Donald Trump's fault. The president needs to be prepared and to weather the storm. But this was the right thing to do. There will be consequences. There will be fallout. There will be a reckoning. But it was the right thing to do. And we have now seeded chaos within the Iranian regime because the guy who was going to replace Soleimani, he's already dead. And now Soleimani is gone. And that's going to cause Iran problems. And we should be grateful the president had the guts to do this. Welcome back. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I've got an email from a listener, Martha, who is asking where she doesn't say. Uh, Martha wants to know, regarding what you were saying about Soleimani and Iran and, I guess she means asymmetric warfare, uh, how do you think they will respond? 
It's actually a very good question. And the experts I talked to this morning and the people within the national intelligence community and the national security apparatus in the White House, they believe that it will, first of all, they know that Iran cannot respond to us as a traditional military would. Uh, Iran has been able to respond to the United States in the past, uh, asymmetrically hijacking or blowing up airplanes or going after our diplomats abroad, um, doing the, very much uh, look at al-Qaeda and how they handled uh, the United States blowing up embassies in Africa and things like that. Um, do we have to worry, and I suspect this is where Martha and others are, are getting, and I see this uh, playing out on social media. Do we have to worry here that if Iran could come to the United States and hurt us here, Targeting American citizens, uh, Disney World, Disneyland, the the Washington D.C., New York City, they absolutely would. And I, this is not me trying to scare you. This is just the reality. The United States targets militaries. Iran targets citizens. The reason Iran targets citizens is it has to fight in a different way than we do as a traditional military. Iran needs to turn public opinion against the president of the United States, and the best way to do that is to target American citizens. So if Iran could do something violent in the United States at a prominent tourist destination to to kill as many Americans as possible, you're darn right, they probably would. I suspect that would turn aggressive sentiment against them, and they would be targeted much more violently than going after an American embassy or American diplomats or American soldiers abroad. But I think they would. The issue, though, is that Iran does not have that capability. Again, going back to the first hour, I mentioned Iran tried to assassinate uh, the Saudi ambassador to the United States and did so with the help of Mexican drug cartel. The issue, though, is that they didn't actually talk to the Mexican drug cartel. They talked to DEA informants who tipped off the DEA, the FBI, and the CIA, and the plot was scuttled. The further away from Iran that Iran gets in operations around the world, the worse it does. There are lots of people floating, oh, they've got embedded people in the United States who are even now plotting. Uh, The history of Iran shows that a lot of those people aren't fully competent or they've decided they like America when they get here. Uh, Will there be a sleeper cell? Maybe. It's all speculation, though. What I do know is that Soleimani is the guy who organized all of these things. There was just video broadcast of the announcement on on Iranian TV, and the head of the Revolutionary Guard is in tears, uncontrollable sobbing. Good. Uh, Good to see him crying over this. Uh, We have taken out the guy who made all the decisions. Now they got to find somebody else to make the decisions, and there's no one available. It is interesting. Uh, the phrase that is circulating uh, among most of the people I'm I'm seeing online right now is the game has changed. Um, it, what What's funny about it is that uh, the Secretary of Defense, Mike Esper, actually said that yesterday before this uh, attack on Soleimani. The unrest, this is from Reuters, uh, the unrest outside the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad followed U.S. air raids on Sunday against bases of the Tehran Bay Khatib Hezbollah group. Washington said the airstrikes, which killed 25 people, were in retaliation for missile attacks that killed a U.S. contractor in northern Iraq last week. The protests marked a new turn in the shadow war between Washington and Tehran playing out across the Middle East. 
the game has changed and we are prepared to do what is necessary to defend our personnel and our interests and our partners in the region, Esper said. During the same press briefing, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Miley, said there had been a sustained campaign by Katabi Hezbollah against U.S. personnel since at least October. The missile attack in northern Iraq was designed to kill. 31 rockets aren't designed as a warning shot. That's designed to inflict damage and kill. He said it was highly unlikely anyone could overrun the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, and if they did, they would run into a buzzsaw. The United States sent 750 troops to Kuwait earlier this week, and U.S. officials have told Reuters an additional 3,000 additional troops could be sent to the region in the coming days. Uh, there you go. Um, I, I will say that there are a number of people. In fact, I'm, I'm seeing a text from a buddy of mine. We're on the same email list, and I, I know he's listened to the program as well, and I'll just tell him down the line that I agree with him. Uh, I, I think some people are prone to go immediately to the worst case scenario. And with the Iranians, uh, sometimes going to the worst case scenario is legit. Um, I do not see the scenario, though, playing out as, as some are that Iran and, and China and Russia are going to get together and try to go after the United States in some coordinated effort. I don't see that. Uh, the people I have talked to are, are they their entire mission in life is to examine worst case scenarios, and even there, they they don't think that the Iranians and these uh, major powers like China and Russia would do something like that. At least not now. But certainly, there will be additional violence happening, and Iran will do what it can do to make our lives miserable. I suspect it'll be abroad, though, not domestically. I, I don't think you got to worry about. Um, your vacation plans. I don't think you have to worry about going to the beach or going to Disney. I don't think you have to worry about some biological disturbance or, or an EMP attack in a port that takes out on a major American city's power grid and stuff like that. I, I just, I don't see that happening. I will tell you this though. There are people who are prone to fits and worries over stuff like this. And all I can tell you is the good Lord is sovereign and this is all part of a plan. And I don't know what the plan is, but I've, I've read revelation. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, I see everything at a level of eschatology, and I'm an amillennialist. I'm not a premillennialist. For those of you who know, you know. Um, but all things work for the good of those who are called according uh, called according to His purpose. Uh, so don't don't fret, don't worry, live your life. Uh, the world's not coming to an end anytime soon. And I mean, I would love for the second coming to happen today, but I don't think it's in the cards. Uh, but. Uh, you never know when it's going to happen. I just, I, I wouldn't fret over this stuff. And there are people who at this point are designed to be war, uh, warriors, not warriors, warriors. And, you know, I mean, my family motto is why pray when I can worry. But even I am thinking, okay, some of what I'm seeing now is just hysterics. It is, it is a, an overplay of worry. So let not your heart be troubled. As, as another radio show host would say, that comes from Scripture. Uh, that, that Those are the words of Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled about this stuff. Um, they, we don't really have a clue of what's going to happen. You know, so I was listening. I actually, believe it or not, listen to my program while I'm gone uh, because I, I, I actually I like Chris Burns um, from Dynamic Money. They, they sponsor the show. They're our first advertiser. If you want to advertise on the program, let me know. You get statewide exposure. Um, but he, I, I also, I like Chris and he and I have had these conversations. He, Chris Burns is my wife's and my financial advisor. Um, I have a, it, particularly as I've gotten older and I've been more and more focused on radio and running the resurgent and being on TV, 
I've become worse and worse with balancing my checkbook and keeping up with my checkbook. Um, and I, I just, it, it, it should take care of itself and I know it does it. And I've just gotten bad at it. I used to be very good at it. Uh, and now I'm just not. And it's made more difficult because it's both me and my wife drawing money from a common checking account and, and keeping up with her stuff and my stuff. It's just hard. And so we rely on Chris and, and we've talked a lot about predictions in the past. In fact, he does a predictions program and all the things that people got wrong in the past and all the people that are probably going to get wrong in the future. But, um, one of the things that Chris Burns points out is that, uh, there are so many people who predict so many things and those things never happen. And a lot of the people who prognosticate are bad. And, and that's one reason he advises people. He's advised me that, you know, you know, for example, when you're young, you can be very aggressive in the stock market. When you get to your forties where I am, be slightly less aggressive. When you're in your fifties, um, cut down your aggressiveness in the market even further. When you're in your sixties, move mostly out of the mar- market into stable things. And he's had clients who he says, could have made way more money if they had stayed in the stock market and he advised them to get out of the stock market. But the reason he did it is because they'd hit retirement age and you don't want to be worried about the stock market crashing tomorrow. And there's no way to predict if the stock market is going to crash. And there are people who do predict economic downturns and economic upturns. We hear this all the time. And the predictions market is terribly unreliable. So there are things you do that by virtue of life, we know you should do to save yourself. Yes, you may not make as much money, um, but perhaps, no, you're, you're not going to be able uh, or you are going to make money because the stock market's crashed and you've moved your money out of the stock market. The best thing to do is to go through the patterns of life not to rely on crazy predictions, not to rely on astrologers. I'm shocked by the number of people in the media who suddenly have brought astrology back. You know, when I was a kid, uh, a lot of newspapers, maybe they still do, for those of you who have newspapers, they had the horoscopes. They were always wrong. They were always written so vague, like fortune cookies. It's just a bunch of garbage. Uh, But there were people who really believed them. There were people who bought into the horoscope. They were going to have a bad day or they were going to have a good day or or this was going to be their year. It's the year of the rat or it, it's the year for Gemini's or whatever. It's a bunch of hocus pocus nonsense. And there were people who believed it. There were people who lived their lives that way. The reality is that we can look in life and see certain patterns and we can make educated guesses on things, but the predictions market is always bad. So don't live your life in fear based on predicting something bad is going to happen. God ultimately is in charge. He is sovereign. Uh, put your trust in him, not in crazy predictions and horoscopes. A, a, a random aside here. And we got to get into the fundraising numbers. We really do have to get into the fundraising numbers. Um, it, it, the president now has basically half a billion dollars cash on hand. Uh, and the Democrats are, they have no money cash on hand. It's it's, we will get there. But, while I'm on this tangent, let me let me just go off on this tangent. I, I, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the last month or two has mentioned her horoscope and her her um, her sign um, and uh, astrology sign. There's something happening culturally. And I don't know that I'm the best person to articulate it, but. I was talking to a guy, I was at a Christmas party, Bruce Thompson, he's the state center up in Bartow County in Northern Cherokee County. And he had another guy there, Todd, who was speaking. And I, I think I've mentioned this on maybe the Christmas program. 
uh, he was talking about playing Bible roulette, which I had never heard anybody call it Bible roulette, but you know Bible roulette. If you're a Christian, you probably pay, played Bible roulette. You just feel like you, you need to get some wisdom out of the Bible, and so you, you close your eyes, you have your Bible in your hand, you open it up, you put your finger on a verse, and you look and see, what is God trying to tell me? And while you're doing that, you're not saying it out loud, but you're opening your Bible and you're saying, please don't be Leviticus, not Leviticus, not Leviticus, not Leviticus, not Leviticus. And that's why you always go towards the back because, you know, the odds are you're going to get a prophet or you're, you're going to get a, a psalm or you're, you're more likely than not going to get into the New Testament. You don't want to go towards the front because you might actually land in Leviticus and then it's going to tell you to stone your child. <laughs> but, you know, you, you look in the Levitical laws and you have to think, what, what is God telling, uh, what does God want to tell the Israelites? There are a couple of things. So one, this is a theocracy and God is in charge. And there is a way to organize their government in that theocracy. Two, uh, there are things that the Israelites need to do to make themselves pure to approach God, a ceremonial law, that in that ceremony sets them apart from the other nations. And three, there is a moral law. Uh, the moral law, Christians believe by and large today, the moral law is still binding on everyone. So, for example, when someone shows up and says, well, you wear mixed fabric clothing, Leviticus says you can't do that. Well, that's not the moral law. That's the ceremonial law. That is the law for cleanliness in uh, the, the Israelite custom to make themselves approachable to God. Those laws went out the window with the new covenant in Christ. Uh, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and in Leviticus, there are a series of laws that are go, basically a deep dive in Leviticus, that there are a deep dive in the Ten Commandments. That, for example, is one reason Christians say can say the, the ceremonial law and the civil law are no longer binding. Um, and when people say, well, what about homosexuality? Why is that still a sin? Well, because the, the sections in Leviticus about homosexuality are found in the deep dive of the moral law based on the Ten Commandments, not in the ceremonial law and not in the civil law. So therefore, those aspects of the law are still binding on Christians. Now, that is way further of a tangent than I wanted to go. Let me pull it back here. Uh, one of the things in the, in the Levitical laws that separates the Israelites from everyone else are tattoos, the occult and astrology, which arguably that, that's part of the moral law. Um, there's the McFabric clothing, there's the, the shellfish, the, that sort of stuff. But it's amazing to me, now those were laws, and think about this, if, if God is telling the Israelites, you can't have tattoos, that probably suggests that all of the people around them do. God wants them to stand out, to be set apart. That's all part of the ceremonial laws. God's setting the Israelites apart. Uh, they look different from everyone else. They behave different from everyone else. There is actually a, a something Christians in modern society can take from that is God wants you to stand out in your behavior and actions with the moral law in ways that the rest of the world does not. But it, it's fascinating to me that in post-Christian America, we see the rise of tattoos again, and we're also suddenly seeing the embrace of of um uh, of astrology now that that's not to disparage people with tattoos don't don't hear that my wife actually just got a big one on her arm i'm not a fan of tattoos i'm i think i'm now my only the only person i know other than philip who uh doesn't have a tattoo i mean my god even chris burns got one uh him <laughs> um i so 
but I'm now in the minority. It, it is. It, it seems that most people, even a bunch of Christians, a bunch of hipster Christian pastors, all go out and get tattoos, and they more and more reflect society. There is something a little bit ironic about people wanting to express their individuality by all looking alike and, and getting tattoos. Uh, but it, there was something about the moral law and the civil uh, ceremonial law in Israel to set them apart and make them look distinct, where they, they, they weren't into astrology and, and fortune tellers and, and the occult. They weren't into tattoos, and as we've moved to a post-Christian society, a lot of those things that were Levitical to set the Israelites apart to make them look distinct, uh, those barriers have come down, and now a lot of Christians in modern America have embraced these things, and unfortunately, we're seeing a bunch of Christians now go to the sort of Christian occult tangent of, of trying to derive meaning from Scripture and Notre Dame and the Bible code and, and pulling prophecy out of the Bible as opposed to just trusting God and realizing God is sovereign. It is as we have what essentially is going on as we have transitioned from a Christian society to a post-Christian society. A lot of the old pagan habits that are thousands of years old have come back into culture. It's as if Christianity made a barrier to those things in society. And as the Christian barriers come down, these pagan rites, rituals, and, and behaviors have come back in to society. Now, a lot of Christians embrace them, too, as a, as a uh, mode of worldliness. And again, I'm not condemning anyone who has tattoo. My wife has God for—she's got— five or six tattoos. Uh, most of my friends have tattoos. Uh, I'm not condemning anybody with a tattoo. It's just interesting to me how this plays out. Now, where does all of this go with Iran and everything else? Let me see if I can tie this all back. Trust me, I am a professional sometimes. It all gets back to the idea of predictions and behavior in society. Increasingly, in a post-Christian society, instead of people just saying, you know, God's sovereign, his will be done, we're going to trust him, whatever comes, comes, all things work for the good of those called according to his purpose, we now think in some way through a predictions market or through strategies or analysis of behavior that we can control things that inherently we can't control. In the same way, you had pagan societies in the past who believed you could perform certain rituals to induce nature to do certain things. Uh, the Israelites would pray to God and perhaps God would send them rain. The other cultures would commit child sacrifice to do that. Uh, we see in a post-Christian United States uh, a, a deeper drive to try to predict and analyze and derive meaning from a bunch of hooey. And we see that as well in the behavior of our analysts that we rely on in, on television, where they now, they stretch the limits of their predictive capacity to tell us what's going to happen, and inevitably they get it wrong. This is a, it's not a new phenomenon, it's a very ancient phenomenon, but for anyone alive today, it actually is a very new thing, where we're seeing the, the, the people who prognosticate and predict deriving their prognostications and predictions from a bunch of nonsense, and that's shaping the way we engage in the world. And you go on social media and suddenly everyone's an expert. Everyone's read the pop psychology. Everyone's read the pop this and the pop that. No one really knows what's going on, but they perceive themselves to be an expert. There are real experts. Those real experts do have a sense of what's going on. Those real experts do have concerns and they do have some worries, 
but they're also much more realistic and more practical in where they think things will go than those who are just grasping for straws. But ultimately, it comes down to this. You can't really live your life in fear, worrying about what Iran is going to do tomorrow, or what's going to happen to you or me or anyone else. God's in charge. He's sovereign. All things work for the good of those called according to his purpose. So don't panic. Don't freak out. We'll all be fine. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Scott in Atlanta, you're going to be next. Welcome. Hey, Eric, I appreciate your uh, taking my call and love your show. Thank you. If you looked last night at Twitter, all the talking heads like Ezra Klein were saying, oh, this is Trump having a temper tantrum. This is just him shooting off without even thinking about it, the consequences. But if they had actually looked at the plane watcher sites, you could see that the United States was sending dozens and dozens of Air Force planes for the past three days, C-17s, C-5s, C-130s, Gulfstreams, KC-135s, KC-10s. You could track them all the way across the Atlantic Ocean, all the way across the Mediterranean, all taking military assets like the 82nd Airborne, 101st Special Forces, all into the region. This was not a temper tantrum. This was well thought out Mm -hmm. and well planned and well executed so that if Iran responded, the United States would have the forces to be able to counterstrike immediately. This was not a temper tantrum. This was well thought out. Yeah, it really was. And listen, you, you, you can't, these guys like Ezra Klein and others, uh, they are Democratic partisans, progressive activists. Uh, Ezra Klein tries to pretend that he's some sort of objective guy, and he's a, a partisan hack. In fact, Ezra Klein is out there pushing this uh, thoroughly debunked uh, survey that hate crimes, uh, it, by the way, for those of you who don't know Ezra Klein, Ezra Klein was at the Washington Post for a number of years and then went over and started Vox, uh, the site for progressive kids to explain the news for other progressives in ways that uh, aren't necessarily true. And he's pushing a study that hate crimes increase over 100% in, in uh, count Trump counties after a Trump rally in the area. And it's been thoroughly debunked uh, by multiple people from multiple places, and he's still pushing it because he doesn't really care about the truth. He cares about the talking point. And yeah, he's one of the people out there. Oh, this is this is a presidential temper tantrum. I guarantee you, people, what's going to happen? You're going to hear. And in fact, you're already starting to hear. And I'm I'm seeing it on social media. I wrote about it first thing this morning before it was the sun was even in the sky. That what you're going to hear today are two talking points uh, in, in particular. Well, three. One is that the president gutted the national security apparatus. So this was a temper tantrum. It wasn't actually a reasonable decision made through the national security structure. Uh, that's thoroughly debunked. Now, listen, I've been on the phone this morning with the, the people who who are familiar with this, who were involved with this. There was a thorough, reasonable, multi-day process, at least, on this. In the next hour, we'll have a, uh, Gabrielle Hoffman, who's from the Resurgent. She's been on a press briefing with the State Department talking about this. Uh, but it, there was a there was a multi-pronged process over several days to make this happen. A reassignment of soldiers, moving moving people, moving uh, equipment. 
And on top of that, you're going to hear the other two predictions. One, that this was all about Donald Trump trying to distract from impeachment. What the hell does he have to distract anyone from? They haven't even impeached him yet. They're not even going to do a trial. There's no reason to distract Americans from an impeachment that hasn't actually happened. And then the third one is that this is all about 2020. He he wants to start a war to get reelected because presidents, wartime presidents get reelected. These are all things that are going to be said by partisan progressives whose brains have been rotted in Trump derangement syndrome. The fact is, the President of the United States acted decisively as Commander-in-Chief to cut off the head of a snake that has harassed the United States for 20 years and been directly responsible for at least 700 American soldier deaths and plenty of other deaths, over a 1,000 deaths of American citizens. And the prior presidents couldn't act or wouldn't act. Obama wound up giving the guy amnesty, and Donald Trump has sent him to his grave. Good for the president of the United States. Now, when we come back, let's shift into some Georgia news and campaign 2020. I've got the fundraising numbers, very curious numbers for the Democrats. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. If you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The eastern part of the state getting some rain. The western part of the state now in the clear. Uh, Coming right out of uh, a briefing with folks at the State Department uh, from the resurgent, my friend Gabriella Hoffman stopping by. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you for having me on and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. So so what's the State Department saying about all this? The State Department is very assured uh, with the decision making that was made in the last 24 hours. Uh, on the call were Department of State spokesperson Morgan Ortega and also Brian Hook, who is a special representative for Iran. And a lot of the reports that are coming out from statements from the Department of Defense to President Trump, uh, back up a lot of the intelligence that has been declassified. And more specifically, uh, we heard from Brian Hook saying that this was a complete and total defensive action and that the intelligence that they received leading up to the airstrike that killed uh, this Quds general, this terrorist, uh, was supported in a swift and quick manner. It had the support uniformly from the president, the secretary of state Pompeo, National Security Council, and everyone else involved in this important decision-making. So one of the the pushbacks I'm already seeing on Twitter uh, from people, including folks like Ezra Klein from Vox, or that this was a a presidential temper tantrum. And it it seems to me that uh, everyone in the administration, I know what I was told early this morning was this was an actual uh, contemplated uh, multi-tiered process that was not made at the spur of the moment. Absolutely. Uh, Brian Hook also was saying that uh, this had to be done uh, preemptively, given the fact that they had received intelligence that this could lead to more uh, proxy wars and other actions. And it was done in response, obviously, as a defensive measure in wake of recent attacks on Americans, uh, stretching from the American contractor that was killed to the siege on our embassy in Baghdad in Iraq. And in the short term, Brian Hook had uh, expressed that it may be difficult and there are things to be cautioned about. But in the long term, he says, with this action that has taken place, the Middle East will ultimately be safer. And they're very confident that that will take place. And uh, they also have said that uh, he was under a UN travel ban in Soleimani, 
and that he actually violated Chapter 7 of the U.N. Security Council. And the fact that that travel ban was not enforced uh, is very interesting and very telling. But um, the terrorist in question was under a U.N. travel ban. That was very interesting to learn about, too. And uh, this wasn't an act of war because Iran, as we all know, has been in a state of war since 1979. And that there was no possible way to appease or retreat. And that... uh, Iran is now weaker and in a state of panic, and it's going to be harder for the proxies in that region to work together. So they're very uh, obviously reflective and very happy with the decision to do this because it'll preemptively prevent a lot of bloodshed and tears um, in the future. And also this was a perfect retaliatory move, given the fact that this general was responsible for hundreds. And I think Brian Hook also said that up to a thousand U.S. service members and Americans were killed as a result of this terrorist action. So uh, it's justice for those who've been impacted, whether they were killed or those who lost their limbs in service as well. So uh, they're very happy with uh, the decision that they made, and they think it's going to go very well in terms of foreign policy. And the media is overreacting, of course, because they're making this into a partisan right. uh, a partisan debate rather than a measured uh, foreign policy victory for the United States. Well, listen, uh, thank you very much for attending the briefing. I appreciate it very My much. My pleasure. Absolutely. My Gabriella pleasure. Hoffman from The Resurgent. Uh, you can go to theresurgent.com every day. It's my website. Uh, and thanks to Gabriella for being on the press briefing with the Secretary of State's office. Uh, Mike Pompeo himself went on CNN a little while ago. Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to play the full interview for you. It was quite lengthy. But he did say this. This again, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo with um, CNN this John, morning. We've, we've anticipated a wide range of possible responses, and we have done our level best under the direct guidance of the president to prepare for all of those possibilities. Uh, we, we hope the actual response, John, is that the Iraqi people will do what they've been doing for months. They'll demand that the Iraqi government give them freedom, prosperity, and sovereignty. We've, we've watched these protests over the last weeks. They weren't burning American flags. They were demanding that Iraqi political leadership uh, stop their kleptocracy, stop their uh, political shenanigans. And Qasem Soleimani was at the center of that. He was driving bad outcomes for the Iraqi people. He was causing many Muslims in the region to be killed. I saw last night there was dancing in the streets in parts of Iraq. We, we have every expectation that people not only in Iraq but in Iran will view the American action mm-hmm. last night as giving them freedom. I think they will. Here's Christian Amanpour, not exactly sympathetic to the Trump administration, talking about uh, Soleimani and uh, the impact. Hassan Soleimani was at the height of his power when he was taken out. Unlike Osama bin Laden, who was a forgotten, you know, nothing burger, sort of hiding in a, you know, villa in Pakistan. But it's not the person you take out. It's what they leave behind and the tentacles and who comes next. Al-Qaeda terrorism did not end with the sidelining of Osama bin Laden. ISIS has not ended with the killing of al-Baghdadi. So if you're trying to end whatever's happening, this is a major escalation, and we need to see what the plan is. I doubt they're going to reveal it. Now, uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher uh, was on with CNN a short time ago, interestingly enough, with Jim Scudo, who was an Obama national security guy, not exactly friendly to the Trump. It's amazing how many people on CNN. In fact, I'm supposed to actually, full disclosure, be on CNN this evening with Anderson Cooper to talk about some polling out of Florida in relation to the presidential campaign. And Anderson and I are friends. 
Uh, and but it, it's striking to me the number of new voices seen in his hire over the last couple of years who are directly hostile to the Trump administration, including Jim Scudo, who worked for the Obama administration as a national security guy, now suddenly uh, given the veneer of objectivity. But he's on with Mike Gallagher, uh, the the congressman. Listen to this. Well, I think it's important to remember that Iran has indeed been engaged in systematic escalation for the better part of the last year. They attacked our shipping vessels uh, in the region and those of our allies. They attacked, they downed an American drone. Uh, they attacked the uptake facility in Saudi Arabia. And we actually were very measured in terms of not responding to those incidents. And now we established a clear red line of don't kill Americans. And if you do, we will respond. And we have enforced that red line. And so I just would argue that it's the Iranians that have been escalating. I would argue further that it is inaction that is the most provocative. And that President Trump has absolutely made the right call here. He has sent a very simple and strong signal that if you kill Americans, we will kill you. Yes. Well said, Congressman Gallagher. I think that's right. The phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I do now, I I, I think I, I... there's nothing really new I can add here now. It, it, it would all be repetition, and there's no point in doing that. Uh, I'm sure this story will continue to develop and play out over the weekend. We'll be back on Monday with, with further details on it. So I want to shift gears now and talk about the dynamics headed into 2020, but I want to be very clear going into this. One of the talking points that is already circulating, you know, I, I, again, I put this up before the sun was up. I put this up this morning as a prediction of what would happen, that the Democrats would come out and the talking heads of the media would come out and say the president did this for 2020. And I am already seeing it among some pundits. And I don't think it's true. And so I, I want to essentially firewall the conversations, put a dividing line behind the, by the conversations because I do want to move on to other stuff. We've talked about this for two hours and 15 minutes now, and there's plenty of other news out there to talk about, but I want to talk about campaign 2020. I don't want anyone to interpret me as suggesting these are related. Uh, That's just where I want to go next. So that being said, let's move into this. Uh, Fundraising numbers are out, uh, and Joe Biden is in third place with fundraising among the Democrats. The president, though, raised $44 million dollars. $44 $44 million. Now, I want to put some perspective on that. Uh, the president has cash on hand now, uh, $200 million headed into 2020. This is from Josh Dawsey uh, at uh, the Washington Post this morning. President Trump's political operation headed into 2020 with nearly $200 million on hand, according to party officials, giving him a financial war chest that vastly outstrips the resources of his Democratic opponents weeks before primary voting begins. Trump's re-election campaign, the Republican Party, and two joint fundraising committees together raised a record $154 million in the final three months. Of that, more than $72 million was collected by the Republican National Committee. Since the impeachment inquiry began in September, the president's campaign and RNC gained 600,000 new donors. These are people who have not donated to the Republicans before. The president's unwavering commitment to keeping his promises to the American people has propelled us to record-breaking fundraising, according to the RNC chair, blah, 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 blah. At the end of November, the Democrats had raised $83.6 million for the year. And had $6.5 million in debt. The Republicans had raised $241 million for the year. 
RNC officials say they've put $11 million into television and digital ads against vulnerable Democrats who support impeachment and they've built up the biggest staff in party history, 400 people in 18 targeted states. Now, let's compare that to the Democrats. Bernie Sanders came out on top with about $27 million raised. Uh, Pete Buttigieg came in second with about $25 million raised. And um, Joe Biden raised $22 million. Joe Biden is almost broke a month before the Iowa caucuses. And the odds are he's going to be the Democratic nominee. Now, this is a problem, and let me explain why. This is 2004 all over again. In 2004, John Kerry did not do well in the early states, even though nationally he polled the best. It took John Kerry a while to actually secure the Republican nomination. The, you had the Dean Scream, uh, you had uh, the the um, Wesley Clark bubble, all of the you had John Edwards, and ultimately wound up being John Kerry. John Kerry had ridden the polling all the time, much like Joe Biden is now, but he wasn't the charismatic, dynamic figure that other people liked. So it took him a while. And in the process, uh, John Kerry had to spend gobs of money to make sure he won the nomination. And once he won the nomination, his nomination was not ratified until the end of July with the Democratic Convention. And by law, he could not have access to matching funds for his campaign until his actual nomination was secure. So he had to spend um, March, April, May, June, and most of July uh, without any money to respond to attacks from the Bush campaign. The Bush campaign had hundreds of millions of dollars that had been stockpiled, and they savaged John Kerry. They portrayed him as a flip-flopper. If you'll recall, in 2003, John Kerry was running ahead of George W. Bush in polling. And George Bush wound up devastating him, getting 51% of the popular vote. The first time in American history a president had lost the popular vote in a first term and won re-election in the second term. That scenario seems to be playing out with Donald Trump. Now, I don't know that it'll actually work out that way. Nobody knows. We're not good at predicting. But the data seems to be reflecting this. Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee, but he's probably not going to win Iowa. He may not win New Hampshire. You got a series of bubbles along the way with different candidates. And Biden is going to have to do what he can to secure his nomination. And when he does, he's already almost out of money. And, and Iowa hasn't even started. At least with John Kerry, he poured his money in to the primaries and, and went broke during the primary process. Joe Biden's almost gone broke and we haven't even gotten to the primaries yet. But he's going to be the nominee. I mean, he's consistently been ahead. He's never been in second place except for one day with Elizabeth Warren where she was two-tenths of a point ahead of him in the Real Clear Politics polling average. But he's otherwise been ahead. Even when he wasn't a candidate, he was leading all the other candidates. He's going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. And he's going to head into the summer, and he's going to be broke. And you're going to have uh, the Trump campaign come after him every which way. Joe Biden last night when Soleimani, uh, word of the Soleimani uh, kill happened, uh, said it was terrible. The president had essentially thrown dynamite into the Middle East, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Joe Biden kind of, he's, well, been wrong about. Yeah, I just sneezed. Sorry. Those of you who saw the live stream saw it happening. I could feel it coming. Joe Biden has been wrong about every major foreign policy decision in the United States. Barack Obama's own Secretary of Defense, uh, Robert Gates, who had been George Bush's last Secretary of Defense, said Joe Biden historically has been wrong about every foreign policy and national security decision. Joe Biden's the guy who did not want to go after Osama bin Laden. 
And now he says we shouldn't have gone after Suleiman. All of that and the Hunter Biden stuff is going to come back and get him between the time he secures the nomination at the polls and officially becomes the nominee in, in July and has access to matching funds. He's going to have to rely on outside groups to defend him. Here's the thing. Joe Biden can't coordinate with those outside groups. There's no guarantee they'll get their message straight and be on the same page. That was part of John Kerry's problem. He had outside groups defending him, but those outside groups couldn't coordinate with him. And they muddied the message while the Bush administration, Bush campaign, had a very consistent message that John Kerry was an untrustworthy flip-flopper who you couldn't put in charge of war. So many people in the media are convinced that there's no way Donald Trump can win in 2020. Following the Bush campaign from 2004, and it appears that's the playbook they want to use, the media said George Bush wasn't going to win in 2004 either, and he did. Uh, nothing really surprises me anymore. I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by it, but uh, Nancy Pelosi is out on social media. American leaders, highest priorities to protect American lives and interests, but we cannot put the lives of American service members, diplomats, and others further at risk by engaging in provocative and disproportionate action. What, what is disproportionate about uh, killing the man who is responsible for the deaths of a thousand Americans? A uh, man that the Obama administration considered taking out. I, it, this is, we, we live in peak partisan times where everyone is expected to have a tribal response. And it, it actually is a little bit, I mean, and I realize it shouldn't be. And I guess I, I shouldn't use the word surprising because it's expected. But at the same time, it is a little shocking that every Democrat is coming out to condemn the president for doing what Barack Obama himself considered doing and just didn't do. That really, to me, is is shocking. Uh, so here's Cory Booker now. Uh, let's go to MSNBC on, on what they're saying. On the campaign trail in New Hampshire as we speak, right? Yes, I am. Uh, Senator, the Trump administration and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo this morning says that the U.S. acted to disrupt a, an imminent attack in the region abroad. If the intelligence bears that out, do you think President Trump made the right decision here? Again, I, you know, I sit on the Foreign Relations Committee with Chris Murphy, who I think has uh, put it right uh, on MSNBC. This is a very serious action against Iran, and, and, and it's not one that we have not had opportunities to do in the past. Even the Israelis have had opportunities to take this in the past. And we know he is a person who has done horrific acts, not just in Iraq. He has American blood on his hands. He has taken actions as far afield uh, as uh, irresponsible for the Iranian uh, malfeasance in Yemen, in Lebanon with, with Hezbollah, attacks on Israel. We know who he is. But the question is, Number one, did this meet any kind of strategic standard that this administration uh, should have? Because clearly, they do not have a larger strategy in the region. Under their leadership, Iran has become more influential and more dangerous. And then number two, are you thinking in the larger strategic con uh, context of what the fallout of this might be? What will it put our allies mm. in danger? Obviously, Israel's at high alert. Um, what are the consequences of this action? This is a president who, who does foreign policy by impulse, by tweet, with no larger strategy, and he's making the world less of a safe place. That's not actually true. That That's the characterization. You know, early on in the Trump administration, 
there were lots of people in the media saying how chaotic the Trump administration was and the president's always in, in a foul mood and he's always yelling and on and on and on and they're getting this from inside White House staffers. Uh, but I, I got to tell you, I've got a lot of friends who work for the president. A lot of friends who work for the president. And every single one of them said these caricatures in the media really aren't true. That the president really does, when it comes to foreign policy, he does know enough behind the scenes to know, not his braggadocious public persona, but behind the scenes he knows he's got experts around him who he has certain things he wants to do. And he gets the experts to go in that way, but he can be persuaded otherwise. He doesn't actually conduct foreign policy by tweet. Uh, North Korea notwithstanding, I, I, I would say, um, behind the scenes, the president understands the Middle East is a deeply chaotic place. He's not going to bring peace to the Middle East, and he wants to get our troops out of there. Uh, he has now taken an action that may make it impossible for us to get our troops out of there. But he also understands that uh, Soleimani has taken the lives of hundreds, if not thousands, of Americans, and there was something coming. You, you heard the defense secretary say the same thing that our intelligence was able to confirm that something bad really was coming. And this effort was a preemptive effort to nip that in the bud, to shut it down, to stop it, to prevent it from happening. We don't know what it was that was coming, uh, but we know they felt strongly they had to do something like this to undermine whatever was coming. And frankly, I think we should trust those, or even if you can't trust the president, trust the good people around him. They made the right call. It is Eric Erickson here. I, I got to read you this tweet. Of course, the U.S. assassination of Kasim Soleimani is an extremely serious and dangerous escalation of conflict with global significance. The U.K. government should urge restraint on the part of both Iran and the U.S. and stand up to the belligerent actions and rhetoric coming from the United States. That, of course, is Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Bernie Sanders is out now saying that he will do everything in his power to prevent a war with Iran, and he apologizes to no one. All righty. Um, and then, of course, you've got Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post, who has been um, for years demanded that we do something about Iran. For years has been a hawk on Iran, cheered uh, John McCain and his bomb, 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 Moran stuff, and now is attacking Donald Trump for uh, doing what for years she has wanted done. Uh, that just, there are some people who are so predictable and she is one of them. You know, uh, Trump has just broken these people and it's somewhat funny to watch. It actually is kind of funny to watch. It's sad to watch, but it's funny to watch. Um, and cause he's just broken these people. Well, it, the fundraising is, is going to also be topsy turvy and upside down. I want to play this audio from Molly ball. I mentioned the president's fundraising and the, the, uh, record breaking fundraising that he's got compared to the Democrats, like $44 million raised by the president in the last quarter, uh, double his nearest, uh, democratic challenger in fundraising total record of cash on hand. I think something like $250 million. Here's Molly ball from time magazine. And this is an asset he didn't really have in 2016. Yes, he was raising money online, uh, but not like this. And he really ran sort of a shoestring campaign, didn't even run a lot of television ads. It's going to be a whole different ballgame for Donald Trump and, and, and by extension for his opponents in 2020 because he is going to have essentially unlimited resources at his right. disposal. And, and even when there is a Democratic nominee, that's going to give Trump a, a, a head start and an ability to yeah. build, you know, an organization 
all over the country. It's going to be very difficult for Democrats to match just the cash on hand mm -hmm. that he's amassing. Uh, is is a real warning sign for Democrats that they're going to have a tough competition on their hands. And sure, that's one of the things you hear from, um, yeah. just from uh, you know, Democratic donor, the establishment folks, is that's what they're worried about going into 2020 when you have some of these other candidates like Bernie Sanders, like Elizabeth Warren, who say they're not going to take some of these larger donations. Um, they say that these these small donors will max out at some point. Now, Bernie Sanders notes that most of his have not. Uh, that said, when you're going up against the massive organization that the president has built, um, there is some nervousness that those might be off the table if they have a nominee that won't accept those donations in a general election. And here's Brett Baer. Meanwhile, the fundraising numbers for Q4 are in, Brett, and they are impressive. Bernie Sanders, $34.5 million for the quarter. Pete Buttigieg, $24.7 million to Elizabeth Warren, 17. Andrew Yang, 16.5. Joe Biden, $15 million. I'm sure you've got some analysis on that, but you have to put that up against the Trump campaign raking in $46 million as well, Brett. Trump campaign taking in money hand over fist, really, and some $10 million in the days just after the impeachment. Uh, so they have really tapped into the anger about that and made it a campaign issue. So they're bringing in a lot, a lot of money. The overall war chest is something like $105 million on hand, cash on hand. That is a big, big pot to play from. It is. And the Democrats are going to have to worry about it, particularly because, as, as uh, Molly Ball was pointing out on CNN, you got Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders who claim to be true believers. Now, we know Elizabeth Warren's lying. She lies about everything. And the media doesn't call her out the way they do the president. But Bernie Sanders isn't going to take corporate dollars. He's not going to take super PAC money. He's not going to do that. And if he were the nominee, that could hurt him. There are a lot of people coming out today saying, oh, Bernie Sanders, he, he's now, the, this Trump action is going to help him. Maybe it will. I think that helps Donald Trump if it does. I'll, I'll tell you what else helps Donald Trump on the campaign trail. I want to play this audio from Mike Bloomberg for you. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. I'm just going to play this audio and then we'll digest it together. It may be true. I wasn't there. I don't know the facts that somebody in the congregation had their own gun and killed the person who murdered two other people. But it's the job of law enforcement to uh, have guns and to decide when to shoot. You just do not want the average citizen carrying a gun in a crowded place. You do not want the average citizen carrying a gun in a crowded place. Now, here's Elizabeth Warren. Let me just say two more things about the data, because I think they're important, and I appreciate that you, you asked this question. The first part is, I'd say that the reason those people were injured was because somebody came into that church with a gun, and that that's how it is that people got hurt in the first place. The second thing is, I don't think there's any data to suggest that universal concealed carry makes any of us any safer. I don't feel safer going to my church knowing somebody could be sitting next to me with weapons. I don't feel safer going to the mall knowing that some fight that ordinarily might have escalated into a little push and shove could escalate into everybody whips out weapons. I don't feel any safer. Where do I begin? I, you know, I'll tell you, I am opposed to people. In fact, I saw a picture of this yesterday 
in Texas. Of course, it was in Texas. Someone had their AR-15 strapped to their back, headed into a Starbucks, making everyone feel uncomfortable. I, I'm, I don't like to make other people feel uncomfortable, and, and I'm really opposed to uh, that level of open carry where someone has an AR-15 on their back. And, and personally, I think if you've got a holstered uh, uh, a semi-automatic uh, pistol, you're going to be able to be more responsive than trying to swing your AR-15 off your shoulder while the shooter says, oh, there's a guy with an AR-15. I'm going to kill him first. I, I think you're making a political statement. You're also making people uncomfortable, and you're undermining people's support of the Second Amendment when you do it. I got to get my concealed carry permit uh, renewed. I let it lapse, and I'm outside the window to just be able to automatically renew it. I got to go through the whole process again. And... I never had a concealed carry permit, nor did I ever carry a gun with me until uh, my life was threatened a couple of years ago and my family was threatened. And my wife and I both uh, figured we needed to take a class and learn how to use a gun. Uh, we both have. She's better at it than I am. And we carry. Now, I don't now because I don't have my carry permit with me. Um, you know, the guys at True Precision, they're awesome. And they sent me because they, they knew it was an issue with me and, and having a, a gun that was easily uh, that I could carry with me. They sent me a, um, a Glock 43X. Nine millimeter and it's fantastic. And it, I, when I get my carry permit back, I didn't with my carry permit in the past really frequently carry a gun just because it was inconvenient. I didn't have a small one I felt comfortable carrying. I, I got one now, and I, intend to make a habit of it. It's it's remarkable to me the number of people out there I know who are concealed carry permit holders. They've taken the classes, and here's the thing with Elizabeth Warren. She says it wouldn't make her feel comfortable sitting next to someone in church who has a firearm. She wouldn't know. She wouldn't know. And the video of the shooting at the church in Texas shows that there were at least five members of that congregation who stood up and drew their firearm, but they had sense enough to know to let the guy who had the training, who was the security guy, go first. And he had the situation resolved within six seconds. There was loss of life among the church congregation. The shooter himself died before he could cause any more damage. And I see there are Christian pacifists out there today saying, oh, well, uh, in fact, I, I saw one this morning say we should not have killed Soleimani and uh, you should not have security guards at church killing people. Uh, I, I Well, I understand where they get their conviction from. I think they're wrong and badly interpret scripture. But it is striking to me that we have a bunch of presidential candidates on the left who see what happened at this church on Sunday. And their direct immediate response is to go full anti-gun. The, they can't even bring themselves to describe the, 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 the man who defended his congregation as a hero. They can't, was Jack, I can't remember his last name. They, 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 can't, they can't bring themselves to say he's a hero. Their position is he shouldn't have had a gun in the first place. But again, like with Elizabeth Warren, she wouldn't feel comfortable. She's never going to know. If you're a responsible gun owner, concealed carry, you're never going to know that the person has a gun with them. You, ju you just not, it's not going to happen. 
Nobody who uh, responsible gun owners who conceal carry are not dancing in the streets wearing wearing signs over their head, neon lights flashing. I got a gun. I got a gun. I got a gun. It's the idiots making a political statement who are undermining our Second Amendment rights who are carrying the AR-15s into coffee shops. Uh, it, turning off people, scaring people, saying, oh, who is this guy in an age of mass shootings? Who is this idiot who isn't going to be able to get the thing off his shoulder and, and aimed in time to deal with the mass shooter who comes in and sees him with the gun and says, I'm going for that guy first. The concealed carry holders, they're the responsible ones. And Elizabeth Warren will never know who they are because they're responsible. They're not going to brag about it. But she doesn't know that. Mike Bloomberg doesn't know that. Mike Bloomberg doesn't think the average American is capable. What does that say about Mike Bloomberg that he doesn't think the average American is capable? Mike Bloomberg has a history of looking down his nose at average Americans. The average American can't decide for themselves what to eat. The average American can't decide for themselves what to drink. The average American can't bring themselves to decide where they should go, what they should uh, do, how they should shop, what they should fly, what they should drive. Mike Bloomberg believes the average American is too stupid to make up their mind and he must live their life for them. And Elizabeth Warren, to some degree, is like that. And you know who else is like that? Joe Biden. This is this is increasingly an, an aggravation of mine. I'm not going to say it's a pet peeve. It's just an aggravation. Listen to this Joe Biden clip overnight. I agree with you 100 percent. We should not be allowing plastic. And what we should do is phasing it out. And if you notice, but we ha- we're running into a problem right now. The problem is we have a president who says there is no problem. We don't have a problem with the environment. We don't have a problem with pollution. We don't have a problem with plastic in the oceans. You see that ad on TV now about those guys who started to clean up plastic in the ocean, and now they've turned it into a business, and they're making, you know, they're taking, I don't know how many millions of pounds of plastic out of the ocean that are killing everything from dolphins to God knows what else. So we got to get rid of plastic bags uh, because some people aren't responsible. And it's all about the average American isn't responsible, so the government must act. I got to tell you, if you ever have a child, you will understand how indispensable plastic bags are when it comes to bagging up a dirty diaper, being on the road with a child or what have you. You got a dog. Are, are we going to ban plastic garbage bags next? The the little doggy bags that you take out with you when your dog poops and you got to pick it up. Are we going to ban those as well? The 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 average plastic grocery bag is a tool of modern convenience that serves purposes. The fact that some people will get rid of them improperly, or the fact that we send them to China or Malaysia and they get dumped overboard on ships. Why is that your fault and my fault? Why must we completely upend society because Joe Biden and uh, Mike Bloomberg and Elizabeth Warren think that the average American is too irresponsible, so government must step in and create responsibility for them? Here's the thing. When you begin to tell Americans that they're not responsible and the government must do everything for them, you know what's going to happen? You're going to have a lot of Americans who decide, hey, you know what? I'm not responsible. The government's going to have to do this for me. You got a bunch of people stepping in and essentially telling Americans that they, as people who want to be in charge of their lives, as people who want to be in charge of the government, believe that Americans are too stupid, too bad, too too irresponsible to do anything. And we need the nanny state to do it. And when the nanny state does everything, you know what the nanny state is run by? The nanny state is run by other people who are, according to the Democrats, too stupid and too irresponsible to do stuff. 
the government is completely inefficient. You know, I, I, there was a story out uh, overnight in, in Canada and in Ontario. Ontario government in Canada uh, has lost $45 million selling marijuana. Only a government could lose money selling pot to potheads, but they have. And the same thing would happen here, too, in this country, if the government was the one running the weed stands, the, the, the dispensaries. If we're too irresponsible to make decisions for ourselves, then those in charge of government are the same people too irresponsible to make decisions for ourselves. Maybe we should just allow some people and accept that some people are irresponsible instead of banning everything that makes our life more convenient because of a few idiots that we elect. Yeah, okay. I, I want to talk about something completely outside of politics. As we as we wrap up the show, Rush would appreciate this as many of you will, will head into listening to Rush. Um, can I we talk about Tom Brady for just a minute? And anyone who listens knows I am not an NFL guy. I like college football a lot. Uh, I'm, I've never been a huge NFL fan. Uh, growing up, I mean, I had the Saints, and they weren't great when I was a kid, but now they are. We, we, we had to root for Mannings wherever they went, so I've always rooted for Mannings. But uh, whether you say that, whether you believe the Patriots are a bunch of cheaters or not, Tom Brady is a great football player. He is. But the Patriots did not have a great season. What, Miami beat them? And Miami's like a horrible team. They're not like a horrible team. They actually are a horrible team. And my dad is from Miami, so he loves the Dolphins. He loves the Saints. But I, I, I knew something had to be up. There's, there's just It's a lesson in hubris. Before the start of this season, there were all of these massive profiles about Tom Brady and how awesome Tom Brady is, how Tom Brady is going to keep playing. He, he, he's, he's in his 40s, and he's but he's got the body of a 20-something. His diet has rejuvenated him. He's got all these people and his wife, and they make sure that his his body is the best body, and, and it's, it's the body of a 20 or 30-something, though he's in his 40s, and his mind is so acute and so sharp, and he's so brilliant, and, and Brady, Brady, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. And it just struck me at the time as a level of arrogance. These are not, by the way, I, I know enough about how the media operates, that these are not stories that the media went out and sought. The media did not go out and decide, hey, we're going to do major Tom Brady profiles about how uh, his body is so much younger than his age and his mind is, is like that of a 30-year-old and his wife is hot. And Okay, they may do the hot st wife stories anyway, but the rest of it, they, they wouldn't do. These are stories that are planted by PR people, and typically they're planted by PR people close to Tom Brady or close to the Patriots. And it, I don't think it was a coincidence that these stories came out uh, shortly after the big ESPN profile about uh, the, the Patriots have a long-term problem in that if you get too close to Bill Belichick, Tom Brady gets threatened. If you're a, a third-tier quarterback and, and Brady doesn't like you, well, then you're out of the team because Brady and the Crafts are tight, and Brady doesn't want anyone on the Patriots team who could potentially uh, step in for him and overshadow him. And 
so you, you've got this disruption among the Patriots where you, you've got the people who are with Belichick or you got the people who are with Brady. It was hard to thread the needle there. They had lost 10 members who had run afoul of one or the other. Uh, you had the, the coaching staff and the medical team there, and Brady wanted people to use his guy, who the, the coaching team thought was a bit of a quack, apparently. And so you had players who were, it was just that the politics of being on the Patriots team were becoming increasingly difficult to navigate. And a lot of it had to do with Bill Belichick as the coach, but Tom Brady was the star quarterback who had the ego and was close to the family. And it was all sorts of problems. And I don't think it was a coincidence that thereafter these fawning profiles of Tom Brady came out about how he was going to play forever. Uh, the whole team had his back. He was the man. Uh, he, he, even though he was in his forties and should be retiring, he wasn't retiring. He wasn't like that, that beat up guy, Peyton Manning. No, no, he was better than that. He was in better shape than that. He was better conditioned than that. And his mind worked better than that. And on and on it went and you got these phony profiles. And then what happened? It's not that they had a terrible season, but it wasn't the season they expected, particularly given the buildup and the profiles. And now I see a story today that the, the stadium and, and Brady are basically, uh, they, they've been together for this whole time and now they're thinking of doing a new stadium or, or some such. And I just, man, the level of hubris and arrogance in stories like this, you could, you could make a movie about that arrogance and it does relate to the arrogance we see elsewhere. The, the moral conviction of people that they are absolutely fundamentally right and they can't give anyone else credit. They can't allow anyone else to succeed. We see this in our politics. We see this on the Democratic side. We see this with talking heads of the media who some of them, listen, I, I have a couple of friends of mine in the media who have had very bad things happen to them and their family in the past couple of years since the president started attacking the media, has called a couple of these people out by name in the past, has ridiculed them. They've had death threats. They've been targeted by people who wanted to do violence to them. Their kids have been threatened and harassed. And they have come to deeply hate the president because they blame the president for these things. And, and there's direct correlation there. And they have, if you will, to some degree, suspended their professional judgments on the president because of their hate for the president. And all I can do is show them grace because I've been there. But there are others who, they haven't had these bad things happen, but they've turned on the president because the president has defied their expectations. And they're supposed to be the experts. They're supposed to know they're right. They're supposed to be the ones who call the shots. And they got it all wrong in 2016. And they've fallen back on first, it was James Comey, and then it was the Russians and the line. And they hate the president because the president has showed them to not be the genius they thought they were. There is such a level of hubris out there, whether it's in the NFL or in politics, and you got to navigate through that to figure out what's going on in life. 